All right, fellas. If you could pick one fictional character to take Manhattan, who would you pick? You know, I've given this a lot of thought. I've I've given this a lot of thought. And I think I, I think the best one, and you would have to make it a period piece, of course. But I think I would love if the child's play movies did sort of a Chucky takes Manhattan. And think about it. You've got a Christmas setting, right? Uh, and he would have the opportunity. Little Chucky would be bouncing around from the old Times Square Toys R Us, you know, to the old FAO Schwartz and kind of just wreaking havoc on Times Square uh, during the holiday season. I think you could use that as a, you know, as a critique of commercialism. I think it also gives you an opportunity to have perhaps an army of Chuckies, which is something that they kind of did a little bit, I think, in Child's Play 3. But this would be a better way to to bring that in. So I, I think, you know, in the legacy of many great characters who've taken Manhattan, you know, Muppets included, I, I, I think uh, Chucky from the Child's Play franchise takes Manhattan, possibly with Bride and possibly with Non-Binary Child. Um... For me, this was an easy one, mainly because the DVD of this guy's work has been sitting on my desk for a while, and I think it's the next show I'm going to tackle. And I feel like the potential is ripe for Columbo to take Manhattan. Um, we've had plenty of Peter Falk in Manhattan and New York boroughs, uh, but those are in things like Cassavetti movies and... Uh, you don't just you don't get that rich, comedic, just wealth of content and just variety of humor. Just just imagine Columbo, just that bumbling genius he is, and his big fat beagle just walking around New York in the seventies and eighties, going at Forty Second Street, seeing all the prostitutes and the pimps, and just outsmarting every one of them. Guys, I think. There were some big missed opportunities. This is one of the times where you wish TV in the 70s, 80s, and the 90s, because this show lasted for a fucking long time, uh, wish they would have broke the budget a little bit to send Columbo uh, looking for a criminal, uh, doing some dirty deeds in uh, Times Square in New York City back in the pre-Giuliani days. Lock up that cruise ship cabin door and open your hearts. We're talking 1989's groundbreaking Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, here on You're Missing Out. All right, everybody, we've got a special episode today. I'm uh, very excited. Um, we kind of got to give a bit of context for this. Now, on this show, we often point out when we're coming up with our picks for the registry that one of the rules for induction in the National Film Registry is that the film must be at least 10 years old. And while that is the rule for induction now, that was not always the case. Uh, you guys might remember we talked about how the Oscars had different best picture categories in their first year that were figuring things out. So too with the National Film Registry. Um, its inaugural year of 1989, they did select a class of 25 uh, canonical films. But they also picked one film from the year 1989 to sort of represent the year, um, which is not surprising. 1989 is a remarkable year uh, for cinema. I mean, that's the year of Sex, Lies, and Videotape winning the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. That is, of course, the year of Do the Right Thing. Um, that's the year of when Harry met Sally, uh, The Little Mermaid. Uh, there's so many uh, landmark films from that year. And, of course, uh, the film that they selected 
um, Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, which is what we're here to talk about today. A, to the core, masterpiece. Well, I mean, look, I let's not, I don't want to sound too, it's, I understand that there can be some kind of mixed feelings on this. Uh, I think because, look, Tom, we've talked about this before. You hear something get hyped so much that eventually you kind of turn your back. Like, what are we dealing right now? You know, Mank came out and suddenly you start getting all these pieces like, ah, Citizen Kane's overrated. And for us, I mean, look, when we went to film school, every year they showed you Citizen Kane. Every year they showed you the 39 steps. Every year they showed you Friday the 13th, Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. These are just like some of the films that are they're they're sort of foundational in a way. I mean they're 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 so undeniable that 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 you want to you want to push back on that, you know? And I think that there may be some people who much like some of the other films in this inaugural year, uh people kind of want to push back on it or maybe some people don't get the hype. So I think it's important for us to get into that. Um so that's why we're doing this uh this episode. We had a, a guest they unfortunately uh, canceled at the last minute, uh, but but we're going to do this. And we're going to talk about this. Uh, I, again, this this foundational, fundamental film. You know, uh, it's going to be hard. Uh, I think uh, it's like we talked about with, with Star Wars, or uh, you know, with with, uh, with some of the other films in the registry, where it's just they're so obvious that what, you don't really know what to, to say. Yeah, what I mean that's kind of that's kind of the mind. We've mined Jason takes Manhattan for all. Yeah, its I mean it's I like mean, there's, it's... there's no more toxic sludge in this sewer. But but oh my god, I I okay. Before we get into it, I just want to say like that's one of the things that really gets to me with this film is, look, Tom, you and I are both lifelong New Yorkers, right? Yes, and I I have to say, and I I I hate to get emotional as early, but it. <sighs> To see it so accurately capture the way that um, the toxic sludge used to fill the sewers when I was growing up uh, here in New York, it just... Well, you, you know, I you just know. we it's... both have fathers that grew up in the heyday of New York City, yeah. the 70s and the 80s, when New York was truly a hellhole, and on every street corner there was an alley, and in said alley was at least one barrel of just steaming, hot, toxic sludge... Uh, different kinds of toxic sludge, mind you, than the sludge that uh, runs through the sewers every midnight. Now, different sludge. By the we, way, we, um, we, we have different sludges in, in the boroughs here. You know, whatever's up top is, is of a higher quality than the ones below. We don't care what the chuds get. No, but like that's no, we can't even get into Tom. We can't even get into chud that that doesn't get inducted for another couple of years. So I don't want to talk. I don't want to expend our chud talk Listen, yet. We're going to be talking about say, that season five. All I'll say is that chud came after chud came before takes manhattan and i gotta say i think takes manhattan learned a lot of lessons that chud could have uh, used itself no of course of course but that's like comparing the the 20s ben-hur to the 50s ben-hur i mean it's just building on it but i I think none of them even touched the 2018 ben-hur well that yeah i mean that we've got to unfortunately now they've got this rule so we got to rate wait the requisite 10 years to induct the 2018 ben-hur but but we're not getting into this um Okay, I'm sorry. We're getting too caught up right off the bat. I want to talk about... I want to read the registry statement, and then I want to read um, another quote, and then we will get into this uh, film proper. 
So uh, this is what the registry had to say about uh, Friday the 13th Party 8 Jason Takes Manhattan. Director Rob Heaton took on an American icon, removed him from his familiar surroundings, and in doing so, reshaped what was possible in cinema. Celebrated immediately upon its release for invoking films like Bunuel's Exterminating Angel and for its remarkable score by Fred Mullen of Screwballs 2 Loose Screws and haunted expressionistic cinematography by Brian England, who also drew praise this same year for My Mom is a Werewolf. The film's very title exists as a subversion of expectations. Though its New York scenes are as honest and reflective of the titular city as works like Taxi Driver and Fort Apache the Bronx, its aquatic setting is where the film's brilliantly claustrophobic storytelling truly comes to the forefront. The eighth installment of America's most storied franchise, Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, is an undeniable entry for which exception must be made. Um, and I think that kind of covers a lot, but I do want to point out that uh, Leonard Malton uh, did say of this film the best film in the Friday series imaginatively directed and written by Heaton. That is a quote that you can look up by acclaimed critic Leonard Malton. Now well, he's not wrong. I no, of course not. I'm not arguing with that. I mean, it, the guy just, just hit the nail right on the head as every critic uh, was accurate with their praise of the series uh, back no. in the eighties. Everyone loved it was Friday the 13th mania. I mean, look, here's the thing. Critics couldn't stop just throwing it in your face saying, listen, we get it. Sergio Leone made uh, his final movie. Fellini's made his final movie. The 80s, yeah, great. All this stuff. Oh, Back to the Future? Yeah, nonsense compared to uh, the epic franchise uh, that's really about the American spirit that Sean Cunningham launched back in 81. But what I think is fascinating is it's kind of a situation where, and I think we should address this, um it's coming after a real creative slump for the franchise. I mean, you have, they had killed the character of Jason Voorhees in part four. Yes. And then they tried a new killer in part five, uh, a new beginning. And that was not well received. And then, you know, uh, they brought him back with Jason lives in part six, which was okay. Got issues. And then um, you had the new blood part seven, which is a, Basically, a Jason meets a knockoff Carrie, not well received, performed poorly. Um, it's, I mean, look, it's the kind of thing that you look at and go, there's no bouncing back from this. And then you get an installment that, if I may quote Scott Meslow of GQ in 2018, uh, is the most stylish in the Friday the 13th series. And he went on to say, here's the secret about Jason Takes Manhattan. Despite the false advertising of the title, it's actually a pretty good Friday the 13th movie. A cruise ship might not be as exciting a setting as Manhattan, but it's still a lot more interesting than yet another string of gruesome murders at a summer camp, and the inherent claustrophobia of the boat only grows as the corpses keep showing up on deck. And when the few survivors finally make it to Manhattan with Jason hot on their heels, the movie has an appropriately wicked sense of humor about New York City, as jaded diner patrons and subway passengers shrug off Jason as just another weirdo walking the streets and i think that's what we need to focus on here is i think that it, when the film came out you're right critics uh critics loved it um audiences sort of rejected it at first it was very similar to i think the reception to ridley scott's prometheus you know yes. what i mean i think people were expecting something a lot more hack and slash brutal they were expecting something more like the previous films 
And here you get something that is very intellectual, and I want to say a little abstract. And I don't want to be... uh, uh, Modern audiences were not ready for part eight of this storied franchise to uh, become very uh, Godard-inspired. Yeah, well, you know, and it's it's partly Godard, but I think a lot of it is, is, I feel, a very Louis Bunuel, you know? I And you know what else? I I think about this. um, A lot of Murnau, because I think it's kind of undeniable. People kind of pointed to, at the time, audiences pointed to the fact that Jason spends all that time on the boat rather than Manhattan in a film called Jason Takes Manhattan and thought that was a negative. But I kept thinking about um, Nosferatu, the original renowned Nosferatu, and how a lot of that is on the boat. People were getting a little too up in arms because they were uh, misinterpreting the title. Jason Takes Manhattan, the the name of the boat is Manhattan. It it gets lost in translation here, but uh, they don't say it all that often. But the boats, so Jason does take Manhattan and then through the cosmic fates, as God is laughing on us because uh, people plan God laughs and Jason kills, uh, they end up in Manhattan, giving double meaning to the title. Tom, which, I, uh, again, I think is brilliant. I hate to correct you, but I think you're mistaken. I believe the first boat is Manhattan. The cruise ship uh, is named Lazarus, which uh, draws its name say, from the I biblical thought it was character. Island. No, no, no. It, it Lazarus, which draws its name from the biblical character who's back from the dead, which is of course uh, symbolic of Jason. Uh, rising from the dead, you see. Um, so I want to get into this. Um... See, people, layers. There are layers yeah. and intellectual intellectual forethought oh, that Tom. was put into this movie that uh, it just went over people's heads. We it's, don't. It's yeah, we don't have. We don't have to defend this to the. Li- I mean, again, this is it's it's part of the canon. You know what I mean? Like it's it's. I I don't think anybody's listening to this who who doesn't think this film deserves to be in the registry. You know. Uh, by this point. But I think the bigger question for me at this point is what what we each took from this film, because I think because of its symbolism and its ambiguity, there's a lot of different interpretations to draw of what the film is driving at. Now, because I think that the interesting thing is, you know, the Sean Cunningham film, the original Friday the 13th, um, is dealing with the theme of grief, right? It's it's upfront yes. about the fact that its theme is grief, and I think that carries through the first four installments, right? Um, I think that grief is is the overarching theme of the first four installments that I think function as their own story well, from beginning it, to end, right? Grief and, and grief is even a big part of five because we find out that the killer is uh, Roy, who is grieving the death of his son. Who, the uh, candy fanatic in the uh, house for the mentally disturbed children. Uh, I, that, grief is all yeah. over that movie. Yeah, I mean, I think that, but but they, by part five, the theme of trauma is introduced as well through Tommy Jarvis. Yes. Um, and I think that that element uh, kind of pervades. The problem is, the thing that makes this tough is that those middle films... Uh, particularly six and seven, but five, six, and seven are sort of bereft of, and I don't mean to sound critical of them, but it's sort of bereft of the artistry of the other ones. So you get into a situation where the shift, again, I mean, I, I, I hate to keep comparing it to, to Ridley Scott, but the shift from something that is such a tonal mess as Alien Resurrection, right? Um, and the people who are showing up for Aliens, which is the James Cameron film, which is very broad, and then to get a, an extremely intellectual meditation 
right after that is such a dramatic tonal shift that I just don't think people... I mean, look, like, for example, I am all for the fact that Ridley Scott uh, took the Alien franchise in a new direction with Prometheus and uh, Alien Covenant by making them um, Blade Runner films. But a lot of people uh, aren't weren't comfortable with that when they came out. And now, of course, you know, you do have people taking charge and making the point that those movies are great. But at the time, that didn't quite... Uh, I mean, look, I, I shouldn't say that, too. I mean, of course, it had an influence on... It was critically acclaimed and it had an influence on filmmakers. I mean, a poster for Jason Takes Manhattan shows up in Robert Altman's Shortcuts. It shows up in Kevin Smith's Clerks. And uh, it's referenced in Noah Baumbach's Kicking and Screaming. And those are three of our celebrated auteurs today. So clearly, they're drawing from that. But... Well, I think a big problem that uh, brought Jason Takes Manhattan to divide audiences so and uh, what caused those last few entries to lose the thematic through line and the uh, autoristic uh, filmmaking that so defined the franchise up until part five is that uh, even Paramount didn't uh, appreciate what they had. Uh, Paramount always looked down upon this franchise. They thought they were above it. They don't make movies like this. And they only kept it around because they were making money. But then by the time we get to five, six, and seven, they're meddling too much. They're saying, we need to do this. We need to do this, blah, blah, blah. And then they start losing all this money. And then by the time we get to eight, it's almost like they just ignored it completely and allowed this filmmaker to fully embrace and bring the series back to its artistic roots and make uh, the landmark movie we have today, which audiences weren't ready for it. The studio wasn't ready for it. This is the last movie Paramount made with uh, the Jason Voorhees character. It would soon be sold off back to Sean Cunningham and uh, New Line Cinema. And uh, it, it, it was just uh, as if Fate which is was not ready for this movie. It wasn't which is where it hits its it. creative stride, because then you get... Um... Jason, Jason goes to hell. hell and then um Jason X. well i mean i can't even jason I, that's that's just a that is a i if this is uh, heaven's gate jason x is the deer hunter yeah oh there 100%. was no argument there was no argument that jason x like, you could you could you could hear arguments against yeah. jason takes manhattan obviously it's a big ambitious movie and that's not going to work and, and, and honestly where... it's it i hate to sound cynical but that's what gets clicks. You know, everybody's tired of another article celebrating Jason Takes Manhattan. So, what do you want to do? You you do a you do a windmill dunk on it, and everybody gets excited because you, you just you just can't do that with Jason X. No. It's it's obvious. It's clear. Um, yeah. Then the the new line run continues with Freddy vs. Jason, and then ends on the Friday the Thirteenth remake in two thousand nine. Uh, sadly, the series is mired in legal shenanigans, and the the future of Jason is up in the air. We never, we don't know if this will ever come back to the big screens again. Well, it's running into the, it's it's running into the same problems that some of these other franchises uh, are running into, and some of these other films that we're talking. There are other films in the registry that we're talking about. I mean, think about think about how we were talking earlier about um, King Vidor's The Crowd, right? Yeah, and how Warner Brothers is very litigious about it, but they're also not doing anything with it. And that's the same thing because I know that there was that very well liked Friday the Thirteenth video game that got shut down 
um, because of uh, rights issues. And the same way that I was a huge, huge fan of the um, King Vidor's The Crowd uh, MMO game. Oh, yeah. And, and they shut the servers down. I mean, obviously, that was you the know? next step Sid Meier was going to take after Civilization is the crowd. You get you get laser focused, then you can really uh, get into the nitty gritty of how I mean, capitalism uh, it, brings your Sims like characters down and how it's it affects just a, everything around it. It's just a bummer because I really think um, that those Coney Island levels were going to look great on the PS5 and we're never going to know. You well, know, I mean, it's it's they it's were a working shame. on a patch and it's it's. It, they were working on a patch, and um, you know, I don't know if this is necessarily true. I saw it on Reddit, but I heard that they were going to have some DLC for the Coney Island levels that was going to bring Joe Spinell from Maniac in to really heighten how the people on the lower rung in the crowd don't get really taken care of, and maniacs like that can run around. But hey, it's Reddit. Things can no, be true I mean, I don't, true. I don't doubt that because I bought the um, the Harold Lloyd Speedy DLC for it. Well, I mean, obviously, um, who yeah. didn't? For, yeah. At midnight uh, Central Standard Time when that was released, you had to download it. No, I mean, that was, I don't buy stuff in games that often, but I, you know, I had to get the Kratos skin in Fortnite, and I had to get the Harold Lloyd DLC for the Crowd MMO. That's just the fact. But we, we're getting way too off track. We need to focus on Jason Takes Manhattan. And I want to talk about, I think the thing we need to focus on, Tom, is, again, what does the film mean to you? What is the film about? Because I have my theory as to what the central theme of the film is. And it's, I will say this, I think it's tough because as much as we want to apply the auteur theory to Rob Hedden, the director, he makes wildly different films uh, with wildly different themes. I mean, you're not going to sit here and tell me that uh, Jason Takes Manhattan is an identical film to uh, John Ritter in The Colony, right? Or No, no, no. Or uh, or kidnapped in paradise uh, with Jolie Fisher, uh, or dying to live with uh, Jonathan Frakes. Now, I don't want to. We're not even going to touch on those because those are both 1999 films. So Phil and Kenny will. Um, I don't know if they have they done those yet. Have they done kidnapped in paradise think yet? So, but um, I I don't think so. That seems, but it does seem like Rob Haddon had his Spielberg in '93 moment. It's the Schindler's List, Jurassic Park of its of 1999. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, uh, so so, and and uh, obviously, dying to live stands out because uh, along with Jonathan Frakes and Shan Elizabeth, you have Linda Cardellini, who is the heart of dying to live, uh, much like she was the heart of Green Book. But so, I, look, there, so I think it's it's up to us to kind of look with with art, especially with abstract art you know uh as we're going to discover in future seasons the same way that when i watch a you know when you and i both watch um maya darren's meshes of the afternoon or or stan brackage's dog star man or martha graham's dance films like you and i are each gonna have very different reads on it because it's just about what we bring to it it's the same with this so i think it's important to discuss what we draw from this um well, what what is uh, what is what is it about to you what is what does it mean to you well to me it seems like this movie's really tackling ideas about um not letting fear hold you down um it's also about fate a lot about fate the way it ties in the main character's backstory and how she had her initial run in with Jason in the lake and how she's not going to let that hold her down anymore which is why it, it, she 
is able to overcome in the end by taking the the paint can filled with toxic waste and throwing it into Jason's face, uh, symbolically throwing her fear back in his face. And he is then reduced back to his childlike state, which is what drives him oh, to kill oh. over and over again. Did I, um, can I, I just, I don't know. Every time I see uh, Jason revert back to his child form uh, and his, his face screaming for his mother, I just, it gets me, you know? I mean, it's it's I, one of the most uh, recognizably human traits. Everyone can yeah. uh, respond to uh, the moment where he's saying, Mama, don't let me drown, and just starts projectile vomiting uh, lake water all over the place. Uh, everyone's been there. We've all been and, there. And I have to, So it's interesting you take that approach, and this is, again, with art, you know, and we encounter this with Citizen Kane. We encounter this... Um, with with so many abstract, we encounter this with the works of of Picasso or Degas. You know, you you can kind of read different things into it. For me, I took it as a much more abstract idea. I don't, I didn't read into necessarily human motives there. For me, I think this film is about, and I you know maybe it's trite, but I think it's about the art of storytelling and particularly the suspension of disbelief. Um, and I think that that is intentional here. I, I want to bring to your attention uh, one thing, and I, 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 this, there's, to me, there's no way this was not intentional, but, um, Tom, you're, you're, of course, familiar with Samuel Taylor Coleridge, right? Obviously, yeah. The, the, the aesthetic philosopher. So, uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge is the one who coined the idea of suspension of disbelief, right? Uh, yes. And suggested that if a writer could infuse a human interest and a semblance of truth into a fantastic tale, the reader would suspend judgment concerning the implausibility of the narrative. Um, but the where we got this term is it came from a philosophical experiment that Coleridge conducted with William Wordsworth in the context of creating poetry, right? Uh, and it involved an attempt to explain the supernatural persons or characters so that these creatures of imagination constitute some semblance of truth, which is, of course, what you have to do with an undead killer like Jason Voorhees. So... In uh, the Biographia Literaria of 1870, uh, chapter 14 describes a collaboration called Lyrical Ballads, for which Coleridge contributed a more romantic Gothic piece entitled The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. And this is where the term, which he originally calls poetic faith, which becomes suspension disbelief, is first introduced. I think it's no coincidence that the entire concept of suspension of disbelief is introduced in a Coleridge poem called the rhyme of the ancient mariner. And what is Jason takes Manhattan? But of course an ancient character, you know, this, this immortal ancient being on a boat, you know, the rhyme of the ancient mariner, Jason on a cruise ship. It's you just, it's obvious that was to me, that's obvious. That was deliberate, right? Obviously. Yeah, I mean, that's... Rob Haddon doesn't make decisions lightly. No, no. Uh, you know, so of course you're pulling in college, which is, I think, part of the problem is I don't think the audience was ready for that, you know? And no. you could blame that on the film um, for expecting that fans of the Friday the 13th franchise would have studied college before they came to see it. But quite frankly, I think that's not an unrealistic expectation. Yeah, that's just, I mean, again, I'm being, I'm not trying to look down on anybody. I just, you know. Um, but so to me, I think that that's really what this is about. And I think that if I may, I think part of the evidence here 
for example, right? How does the movie start? Let's set aside as as much as I love the intro, right? The first scenes of Manhattan, right? Where yes. you get um I just can I read the quote verbatim because I love this opening line. Um Absolutely. It's like this. We live in claustrophobia, the land of steel and concrete trapped by dark waters. There is no escape, nor do we want it. We've come to thrive on it and each other. You can't get the adrenaline pumping without the terror, good people. I love this town. I mean, which, again, it just, it sounds like that could have been pulled from the Taxi Driver screenplay, right? Absolutely. That's That could have been in The Warriors, you know? Um, that could have been in The Crowd, right? Absolutely. Uh, the, movie, the movie or the MMO. Um, but it's in this. And so then we jump to... Oh, and of course, the song playing, uh, Darkest Side of the Night, which we're going to get into the Oscars later. But the fact that that was not nominated for Best Original Song is Look, The 80s is was crazy. a bad time in the Oscars. They were making so many mistakes in the 80s that it's... It, it, well, it, I mean, it, come it, on. It, what? It, 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 it's no surprise that they overlooked... What won Best Picture this year is all I'm saying, right? You know? Um, listen, you they, know, they, of course they were going to miss, they were going to miss this movie. I they mean, were miss the boat as it was. Look, I'm, I'll be frank as much as I like this film. I'm not going to say that it should have beat under the sea from little mermaid, which is what won, but I'm saying I would have put it in over the girl who used to be me from Shirley Valentine. You know, that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. But so to me, how does this film start? Right. The film already starts suggesting to you the unreality right and that's another thing i think that yeah. when i see people complain about this film they're saying oh how could this happen how could this happen and when you mention godard or i bring up Unwell, it's the same kind of thing i mean like that's like watching uh pierre the and saying how can she see the camera right or why would a guy commit suicide with dynamite taped around is it like they're it's not real or fellini you mentioned fellini you know that's there's an unreality and the film is confronting you with the unreality, with the brilliant symbol of a yacht on a landlocked lake. It's yeah. telling you right off the bat, eschew realism. If you want to be literal about it, you can ask the question of, okay, how could a cruise ship or a yacht in Camp Crystal Lake, which is a lake in New Jersey, uh, travel to Manhattan? But this is interesting, the unreality from the beginning. And the same way that um, the footage that they show of Jason drowning is different from the original film's Jason uh, is reminding you that this character, this idea has moved from the real world to the world of folklore, right? Yes. And this is what spills over into we open on a teen couple and uh, Jim and Susie and Jim is telling the story of Jason to Susie, and this could just be uh, a lazy exposition dump to uh, to catch you up on the chronology thus far. But it's so much more than that because how does Jim end the story? He says, "Forget it, Susie. They're just stories." Right? He's telling us to unmoor ourselves from reality, and that if we, as the audience viewing a story, are trying to anchor ourselves in reality it will only provoke further unreality and the reason i say that is of course 
What does Jim do after he finishes telling the story? He drops the anchor. Yes. Right? Telling you, if you try and anchor yourself, and what happens when he drops the anchor? He awakens the legend. Exactly. And he provides everything. I mean, he has the mask on the boat, right? So Jim is the storyteller, and it is the storyteller who provides Jason with the electric charge to bring him back. It is the storyteller who provides the mask, who provides the weapons. And I think in my favorite thing, you know, here's Jim trying to promote the unreality of it. When Jason appears on the boat with his mask and the harpoon gun, Jim is frozen in place. Susie thinks to run, but Jim is frozen in place. And I think that's because the idea is at that point, Jim is trying to grapple with the reality of Jason and he can't process it. Everybody who tries to accept Jason as reality is frozen in place. And the only person who is able to elude him is Rennie because Rennie inherently accepts the unreality of the situation. Right? Well, yeah. I mean, you don't make her a budding storyteller. You don't, open up with her receiving a gift of that pen to not it, it, it's this isn't just a cheap uh Chekhov's gun device no. to just have her have a pen to stab Jason in the eye ha- ha- later in the movie this is no. for a purpose well and you're leaving out an important thing here Tom who is the former owner of the pen uh Stephen King Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah. 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 Mrs. Van Dusen says to her, this pen used to belong to Stephen King. Now, and the other thing about that is, it is very... Oh, that he, Stephen King used to use it in high school, she says. And think about that. That's not a ballpoint pen. That's a fountain pen. No high school student would have been using that. Again, you're introducing the sense of unreality. Uh, yeah, I mean, every decision... That's why I say... Godardian because yeah. every decision in the movie, every scene is all about reminding you of the fact that you are watching a movie. This is not real. Every little thing. Uh, the biggest example of that is this is the movie uh, where Jason uh, is not bound by geography. Jason will appear wherever is convenient for him. Yeah, If someone is running away, directly away from Jason, they will round the corner, and there's Jason. Yeah. He is no longer bound by the laws of human nature, by the laws of the the known universe. He is a legend. He has broke forth from the chains, and he, he is unrestrained from being where he needs to be. That's what, He's unrestrained from reality. He is the concept of unreality. You know, and I think that Okay, I I think that part of that, and you mentioned the fear and overcoming your fear. I think that fear, fear isn't just an element of Rennie's character, right? You have Sean. Let's not ignore Sean. Um, Rennie fears the water, and Sean fears the weight of his father's legacy, right? Yeah. And both of these are irrational fears. And what do they both look to? The Statue of Liberty, which is on the pendant. Which, I, that's the one thing that may be a little bit on the nose, but I, I you know, I'm not going to criticize. Um, and it's a symbol of freedom, a symbol of freedom that they themselves have never felt. And not to mention, I should say, uh, to draw this parallel, Rennie's fear of the water comes from her father, right? Her father pushing her under. Yes. Um, so it's both of them dealing with the legacy. 
of their fathers. And of course, the conflict of old and new introduced when Sean's father, wanting him to come and, you know, to captain the ship, presents him with both a digital navigator and an old school uh, compass navigator. I mean, that again, that's just there. That's in the text. Um, can we go back to the the pen for a minute, though? Of course. So I think that an interesting theme in this, too, uh, to, again, to talk about the nature of creativity and the nature of storytelling, every uh, instrument of creativity is a weapon. Not oh, just yeah. the pen. Think the about... Guitar. Well, JJ, yes, JJ's guitar, uh, Wayne's video camera. So JJ's guitar is used against her as a weapon, right? Yeah. Wayne uses his camera as a weapon to uh, blackmail Mr. McCullough when yeah. he is having an affair with uh, his student. Um, and then, you know, but you also have the element Jason as unreality is is destroying influence of creativity he destroys jj's guitar he destroys wayne's camera and well, then later also, he destroys a boombox. well also in maybe the most iconic scene in the movie uh he utilizes um the art of boxing against the boxer well yeah yes yes and in that i mean that you want to talk about fellini i kept thinking about uh, I mean, the idea of a boxing match on a boat uh, observed by all these girls, that's that's an element of unreality that I kept thinking of the boxing ring scene in Fellini's City of Women from 1980. Of course. And I think it's it's impossible to think that, that Rob Heaton hadn't seen City of Women by that point, right? That's, a, you know, a nine-year difference. I'm sure he saw it. I'm sure that's deliberate. Definitely deliberate. There's no, There are no choices made without forethought. No, no. Another thing I thought was interesting, um, though, and this is one thing I thought was an homage and isn't, Rennie's fashion is very similar to Sally and When Harry Met Sally, but that came out the same year. So that's just more of a... It was in the air. Yeah, yeah. Two, two creative titans were just reaching into the ether and pulling out similar ideas at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, look, I do I wonder if... Nora Ephron eventually saw Jason Takes Manhattan. Sure, I don't... I have to check. Uh, my girlfriend has a collection of her essays. I have to see if she did an essay on it or not. I think it's distinctly possible, but I have well, to Well, even if it wasn't from Nora Ephron, I think it, this 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 was this would have been a Rob Reiner decision. Well, yeah, that's true. That's fair. Um, it's, it's just there's so... There's so many little moments. and But to talk about something that I think is very influential... Um, not to jump around too much, but, uh, you know, so we're talking about Jason finally appearing on the ship starts killing people off, right? Nobody wants to believe it because it's unrealistic. And again, it's about people who can't, it's cope just with a the story. Unreality. Yeah. But who does believe it? Our one person, our final girl, the person with the pen, Rennie, because Rennie has already accepted the unreality of things because she is having visions of Jason as a child. She accepts the unreality and therefore she is able to escape while everybody else stays still and screams no, 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 instead of running because they cannot accept the unreality, you know? I, and I think that's what this film is really about. And I think to there, there's a moment in the, later in the movie, in the New York segment that 
really ties into the creativity aspect of it, the storytelling aspect, the unreality aspect of it, which is the two muggers mm-hmm. to kidnap Rennie, take her to their little alleyway where they live, and they shoot her up with drugs and they are about to sexually assault her. But before they can destroy her and lead her down the path that many a creative mind has done drugs and sex yeah jason comes out and impales the the rapist with the syringe the the we- his weapon of choice the creativity killer letting rennie escape another element of anti-reality that jason has been chasing her this entire movie and yet he res- he saves her from a different kind of doom, a doom that he cannot abide by. So now let me ask, do you think that that is, do you think that in that scene, it is Heaton exploring the idea of if Jason is a symbol for the destruction of creativity, is his utilizing the syringe a suggestion that drugs, as you mentioned, drugs and sex, these vices are themselves uh, a, a a weapon of destruction against creativity, or rather is he suggesting that Jason would be opposed to drugs and narcotics because of their stereotypical association with creativity? I wouldn't be surprised. If it, I wouldn't be surprised if it was both of those things. Because okay. uh, again, to to delve into the anti-reality and the choices Hate Heaton is making in this movie to remind you you're watching a movie, these two muggers are very much playing in classic stereotypes of cinema. They, they feel feel very much like they themselves also have come off of the screen and are now attacking Rennie and her the the the, the, the surviving group. So no. I feel like it's all of these things combined to make the statement that d- d- diluting yourself with drugs is a form of anti-reality, but a form of anti-reality that isn't honest. So it's so I, I think what you're saying is that the film is is not so much about embracing unreality so much as not going too far into either reality or unreality is what you're suggesting. It's about finding the balance. It's about yeah. accepting that the anti-reality exists, but not getting lost in it. It's it's about a healthy balance, which creatives need to have. You need to be able to reach into the ether, go into the anti-reality, and wrangle it into the real world. But you need to have a real healthy life to be able to do that for a long time. Otherwise, you will burn out and perhaps go towards drugs and sex as vices to 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 delude the pain of going into the anti-reality. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that you know, but there's also an element and this is something I think is interesting and I think this is something that has confused people for a while with this film, right? Which is the question I think we have to confront. Is Jason the villain of this film and and i think that's worth bringing up you know it's like the conversation we had to have about ethan edwards in the searchers right is this the villain because on the one hand 
he is killing a lot of people on board this boat and then later in Manhattan. However, wait, I I just want to get this. Let me let me just pose the question. Yes. Which is he's killing a lot of people. Right. And that typically would make him a villain. And in the other films, he has been a villain. However, ultimately, what does he do? What is the thing introduced at the beginning of this film? The motive of Sean and Rennie. Sean and Rennie both live their lives in fear, right? They live in their small town in New Jersey in fear, right? Limited by fear. Fear instilled in them by their fathers. And by the end of this film, Jason has not killed Rennie. He has not killed Sean. However, what has he done? He has killed both of their fathers and brought them to Manhattan with the Statue of Liberty, the symbol of freedom they clung to at the beginning. He has freed them of the burden of their fathers, who they are afraid of. He has freed them of their fear. And in his final moments, he himself is undone by his own screaming for his mother. So the question I think is, is Jason the villain of this film? Or is he rescuing Sean and Rennie from the prison of parental fear that they have lived in their entire life? That's kind of what I'm I'm wondering. Well, this. I think it's, as our good friend Kenny Nybart from Podcast Like It's 1999 would say, is that you can't make movies about villains. And I think this bears that out because I don't think Jason's the villain. He is a tragic hero. Yeah. He is led down the wrong path, but he is trying his damnedest to do the right thing. He's trying to help Rennie out. He is trying to make life a purer, more artistic place of pe- for people to reach in and understand that this steadfast refusal to admit that there is something f- more, something greater, something unknown out there. And Jason is trying to do that. He may have to make a mess at times. But if you look at who he is taking out of the equation, it is people that don't believe. It is people yeah. that are holding our heroes back. It is people that are using the art of creativity for cynical and frankly unworthy causes. Um, the musician is not even playing music. She's plugging into a boombox and just air guitaring because she just thinks it's cool. There's nothing pure which about is that. Which is, I'm sure, also a statement on, you know, artifice as well. I think that's... Obviously. You know, yeah. Uh, the, the the filmmaker with his camera, he's doing it just so he can try to sleep with the, the bully girl. Yeah. Again, not a righteous cause to chase the arts, to become an artist. Even the boxer, in his way, it's called the sweet science. It's, uh, boxing's an art. It's that he's using it, again, to look cool to girls. He's trying to be cool. There's nothing pure about his his efforts. And that's why he runs out of air. He steams so much when he boxes Jason because there's he's not being fueled by a purity. So Jason is able to thus, with one fell punch, a pure punch, yeah. a pure artistic punch, take his head off cleanly. And, uh, and let's just address that, that thing with the head because I was thinking about the fact that I've actually seen, and this, look, it's the internet, right? But I've actually seen a couple people criticize that scene. And well, listen, you, 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 you'll find you'll find anybody yeah. critiquing anything on online. It's it's but it's it's how film Twitter is funded. I'm so surprised by that because 
um, you know, the the complete and clean removal of the boxer's head. Um, to me, I mean, I don't see how we can say that that is bad. And then a couple years later, um, Wild at Heart has Bobby Peru, played by Willem Dafoe's head, explode. And that film wins the prestigious Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, right? Well, or 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 Marvin getting his head blown up in Pulp Fiction. I think it's in the rich legacy of artistic films using decapitations. That's well, to me. it's it's it, it, anybody bemoaning the scene is missing the obvious punchline of the scene, and it's not that he punches his head off clean with one punch. It's that this pure cynical artist, his head is taken clean off the brain. With, uh, yeah. the, the the focal point of where creativity comes from is thrown in the trash. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I think the other thing with the boxing scene and, and this is, you know, we always talk about these happy accidents where, you know, because the robot shark didn't work when Spielberg was shooting Jaws, he had to shoot around it and you get that great, um, you know, that, that sort of uh, having to shoot around it, that sort of suspense of not really seeing the monster in that same way. Uh, I think in this, and and Tom, I'm sure you know this, but some of our listeners may be surprised, uh, this film was written uh, to actually take place half in Manhattan, and that it was supposed to involve Jason going to Radio City Music Hall, and that Jason was supposed to actually interrupt a boxing match at Madison Square Garden, and that was where he was going to get into a boxing ring and punch someone's head off. And because the budget was dramatically slashed, uh, he didn't have to kind of get creative with it. And, and again, because of Paramount's yeah. uh, just complete disinterest and lack of respect for this franchise. And in but in effect, I mean, I don't know. You know, in effect, we get the rooftop scene. And for my money, I cannot think of anybody who would honestly say they would rather see Jason Voorhees break into Madison Square Garden, interrupt a title fight with uh, acclaimed boxers and punch one of their heads off instead of seeing Jason Voorhees take a bunch of punches on a barren Vancouver rooftop and then punch someone's head off. I don't know anybody who would prefer the former to the latter is what I'm saying, you know? So we won out uh, in that, in that situation. Um, I think other things we need to address, if I may, obviously, yeah, please. To go back to your happy accidents thing, mm-hmm. uh, which also ties into the anti-reality of this uh, masterpiece, uh, happy accident in the diner scene uh, in the New York segment when they yeah. run through and the big uh, cook tries to stop Jason and he throws him into the uh, mirror. That that man is a Jason. He, really? That man would go on. That man is Ken Kersinger. He okay. would go on to replace Kane Hodder as Jason in Freddy vs. Jason. Thus, in in effect, uh, having one Jason throw another Jason through the mirror, saying, "I don't accept you. Yeah. You're, you're you you are against everything we stand for, the anti reality of everything, and I'm going to barrel right through you and continue on my quest for artistic purity." And of course, that's that is an homage to another celebrated film, Superman Three. Well, obviously. And so that's the thing. I mean, when you look at the big things they're drawing from here, you know, he's not drawing from uh, he's not drawing from lesser films. You know, he's pulling from Nosferatu, The Exterminating Angel, Superman 3, and Alfred Hitchcock. 
because what do you have? When they escape the main ship, they are aboard a tiny lifeboat in what is very obviously a sound stage, right? Oh, obviously. There's no avoiding the fact that that is an, a deliberate homage to Alfred Hitchcock's lifeboat. Right? I mean, well, I feel obviously. like that's... Yeah. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think that that's important to acknowledge. But to talk about homages, let's take a minute and talk about what films have referenced this. Because one of the moments that sticks with me in the great visuals uh, is back when they're on the ship and McCullough is walking through the kitchen, right? Yes. And you have that gorgeous, I mean, that blue lighting and that gorgeous shot of the light glistening off the knife, right? And then, of course, we cut back and the knife is gone. I cannot help but think that this scene is what gave us the kitchen scene in Jurassic Park, right? And And I think, you know, in... um, you know, so you've got the obviously this think about okay, here, two Academy Award nominated films lift from this kitchen scene. You have Jurassic Park and Under Siege. The the Steven Seagal Tommy Lee Jones film. Yes, oh, oh, which, oh I know it. Both of which uh received Academy Award nominations. And if our listeners don't believe that, please look it up. Under Siege, the Steven Seagal film is indeed an Academy Award nominee. Well, we 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 all know Steven Spielberg is a uh, ravenous consumer of of cinema. He yeah, he, he yeah. knows what he's doing. He looks for every every year. He's he's running through everything, looking to see what he can uh, get inspired by, what he could take from what who he can elevate. And clearly, he saw this movie. Whether he saw it in eighty uh, nine or when he was. Uh, on pre or post production, making a movie like Hook a year or two later, uh, th- that's to be who, who can say. But uh, it, it's clear that at some point, Jason took Manhattan and took uh, Stevens' uh, imagination. And it wouldn't be the last time he lifted from, you know, the Friday the Thirteenth films. War of the Worlds is obviously pulling from Jason X. Well, I mean, you know, listen, but Jason clearly, X was building off of Close Encounters, so well, you know, listen, it's kind of a it's well, a back. Listen, listen, clearly, Freddy vs. Jason inspired the BFG. Um, uh, before I before we get into the Oscars, I do just want to point out a couple things that I think is very interesting. Um, uh, and this is true. Look this up. Uh, Jensen Daggett, who plays the role of Rennie, uh, beat out both Elizabeth Berkley and Pamela Anderson for the lead role in this film. Interesting. Um, uh, you know, which is which is fascinating because you know, Berkeley went on to have a career. Pamela Anderson went on to have a career. Uh, Jensen Daggett has retired from acting now. Well, um, you, you you go out on a high note. Yeah. Um. Su- the actress who plays Susie, on the other hand, uh, is uh is a screenwriter now. Uh, really? Yeah. Absolutely, is a screenwriter now and wrote the feature film adaptation of Nancy Drew, the recent remake of Adventures in Babysitting, and the new Netflix film from this past year, Holiday. Really, uh, right? That's, that's pretty wild. That's that's not to break kayfabe. That's legitimately real. That's that's what she does now. No, yeah, no, and that's I pretty crazy. I want to talk on the show. And uh, from again, one of the best uh, examples of the anti-reality that uh, is in this movie is the. Uh, the the dance hall kill sequence yeah, and yeah. the teen in that 
is Kelly Hu, who would yes. go on to be Lady Deathstrike in X Men Two, have Correct. a nice little career for herself that she's still uh, she's still plowing on, doing doing some solid work to this day. So let's let's talk about the Oscars. It was as we always do, we wrap up talking about the Oscars. Um, despite being inducted in the registry, Friday the Thirteenth Part Eight, Jason Takes Manhattan, was not nominated for any Oscars. Um, the Best Picture nominees that year were Born on the Fourth of July, Dead Poets Society. Field of Dreams, My Left Foot, and the winner, Driving Miss Daisy. Now, I have actually watched all of these films, and for my money, let's face it, are we talking about Driving Miss Daisy more, or are we talking about Jason Takes Manhattan more, is all I want to say on that one. I I think the answer is pretty obvious. The fact that they snubbed Sex, Lies, and Videotape, the fact that they snubbed Do the Right Thing, the fact that they snubbed Jason Takes Manhattan... You know, again, I've already covered uh, the song category that I think Darkest Side of the Night should have been up for. And it's worth noting um, the best visual effects nominees that year were The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, Back to the Future Part Two, and the winner, another aquatic thriller, The Abyss. So, well, it's, which they I'm not, not. They were just not on point this year. What, what can we say? I, the but I'm not going to. I think the thing that's killing you know, that kills me about that is realizing like, so you have these practical effects in Jason takes that and the same year you get the abyss, which is like telling you, you're never going to get practical effects like this again. You know? Yeah. You're never going to get that. And now the blood spurts are all walking dead CGI. Like it's, it's a bummer, but so that's how that, uh, shook out. No Oscar nominations for it, but of course, uh, inducted into the national film registry. All right, so to wrap up like we usually do, what films would you guys include in the registry? Remember, it must be an American film and that it's at least 10 years old. So, yeah, because that is the rule now. Um, I was thinking about it from the angle of sure I could pick the the horror element or I could pick the abstract element, but I was thinking about another film um, that should be inducted. And I was thinking about a film, an Oscar-nominated film that has a very similar theme to this one, right? It is set in Manhattan. Uh, it is a fish-out-of-water kind of story, and it has that same element of um, accurately depicting Manhattan as full of smoke rising from the sewers. Uh, everybody has a boombox, and it's full of uh, multi-ethnic street toughs. Uh, you know, in that very uh, weird way that all films that depicted New York uh, did at that time. Uh, it's around the same time. Uh, Jason Takes is 1989. This is from 1986. Um, but it's it was a huge film. It was, as I said, it was the second highest grossing film in 1986. It was uh, nominated uh, for an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. Uh, and it, it has endured in the public consciousness in a very real way. I'm sure Tom knows where I'm going with this. Of course, my pick is Crocodile Dundee, nominated for the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay in the year 1986. Uh, I think oh, that I, I think that you know it's one of those cases where, uh, and and quite frankly, not only nominated should have won. I mean, Hannah and her sisters, Crocodile Dundee, you guys do the math, but uh, Crocodile Dundee just, it's, it's a, God, I, no, I cannot think of a movie that has aged better 
uh, in terms of the jokes it makes about New York. Uh, just uh, fantastic. Um, I mean, uh, how do you not give the Oscar to a movie where Crocodile Dundee is shown a bidet, doesn't understand what it is, then sticks his head out a window to yell at a woman and goes, it's for cleaning your bum. Right? Uh, how do you top that? You know, I don't know. You, you I, just don't. No. And and of course, that's not a knife. This is a knife which is still quoted to this day. And I, I mean, when you think of the legacy of this film, uh, saying that's not a knife, this is a knife in any situation is kind of the forefather of somebody saying my wife in Borat's accent. You know, I don't think you would have one without the other. So that's my pick for the registries is Crocodile Dundee. Okay, so for my pick, I am going into back into the horror pool, and I have a pick that is uh, maybe not hitting uh, at as uh, such a high level as Jason Takes Manhattan, but it is playing in a, a similar game. It is a movie that is dealing with the anti-reality as much as Jason Takes Manhattan. It is about storytelling. It is all about telling you you are watching a movie. None of this is real. You have to embrace the fallacy, the the inherent phoniness of cinema to get to a deeper truth, which is what makes cinema so great. And it is an iconic movie. It's a legendary movie. Uh, You you could find people talking about it all the time. It's uh, been memed to death. It is... Uh, truly one of the greats. It is a part of a franchise that has seen such luminaries of early 60s uh, rebel cinema uh, coming into direct and entry like Monty Hellman. Uh, This is Silent Night, Deadly Night 2. It is a movie that is truly something to behold. It is a movie that is all about replaying the movie before it as a story within the movie it is telling. And it's all about just like, like, like Jason taking Manhattan promising you one thing, but delivering you a different thing. But this different thing is so much better than you could have imagined by really just, just, just pulling the rug out from under you and saying, none of this is real. This is all bullshit. You got to just embrace it. And uh, there are a few uh, experiences quite like sitting down and watching Silent Night, Deadly Night 2. And uh, the, the fact that it hasn't entered the film registry yet is uh, shameful, to be honest. And um, uh, we're going to be working very hard to try to get that rectified soon. So that's my pick for the film registry. Thank you so much for tuning in for this very special episode of You're Missing Out. There probably won't be another one quite like for another six years it seems okay we had a little fun with an april fool's goof but next week we will be back to the real inductees and we do hope that you will continue to join us until then you can follow our co-hosts on social media where mike is on twitter at nkoas and tom is at raging bull 1990 while you're there be sure to follow the show on twitter and instagram at ymo podcast if you like what you heard don't forget to rate review and subscribe it really helps a little show like ours if you know some friends who might like the show tell them about it. And if you have someone you think would make a great guest for an upcoming film, tell us about it at yourmissingoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.